0: Hello and welcome to the AdNug podcast, the podcast for the Adelaide.net user group. I'm your host, David Gardner. This is a recording from our April 2018 meeting, the first presentation of the evening, What's New in the OWASP Top 10 with Jim Berger. OWASP recently updated their Top 10 Web application Development Recommendations. Jim walks through some of the new items in the Top 10 and discusses their implications and ways to address them. And now, over to the presentation. Well, this is—it's been a while since I've presented a um, an ad hoc um, thing, so thanks for coming. I'm really excited to be doing this again. Uh, last week I went to a uh, a set talks. Uh, these these guys. Um, so if you're interested in security, they do um, security talks uh, once a month as well. Um, so uh, yeah, come on down to that. Uh, so um, thanks for coming. I've got a bit of uh, ground to cover tonight. So, uh, apologies for talking a little bit quickly. Uh, let me just... let all set up properly. Alright, here we go. So, I've got some uh, simple goals for this presentation on the IOSP Top 10 tonight. Hands up, who knows what the IOSP Top 10 is? Great, awesome. Cool. So um, hopefully I'll introduce uh, to those that aren't familiar with it uh, what the uh, OWASP body of knowledge represents. I'll go through some basic common issues and how they can manifest and uh, even when we're using the latest bits and pieces from, from Microsoft. Um, and then I'll look through some example remediations and fixes. Um, I've got a little bit of a demo on some vulnerable websites Uh, code so I've spent the last couple of days writing some really bad code just for you guys Um, so hopefully you don't see that as representative of what I actually do on a day-to-day basis but (laughs) we'll go through and have a look at that Um, and hopefully I'll give uh, people some motivation to just go and audit their own work uh, and uh, have a look if you're not already doing that kind of thing. Hands up, do you do security code reviews? Yep, a little bit, a little bit. It's a a bit of a scary thing sometimes, so a little bit about me. Um, I've been a developer on .NET since 2004. Um, I've primarily built software for the finance and government sectors for several years, Um, and I've got about two years of experience in PCI DSS compliance. Uh, Most of my work at Sertigi is centred around driving the architecture and implementation and training of staff in our back-end distributed systems, uh, as well as participating in most of the PCI related technical activities. So for those of you who aren't aware, the PCI DSS stands for the Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard, which is really just a big long acronym to represent a huge pile of documents that make people like me um, a little bit nervous. Um, it's all of the rules and regulations around our eligibility to operate with credit card information. So it's obviously very important stuff. and we get it wrong the impacts are quite high. So yeah we do heaps of audits and reviews and uh, it can be challenging meeting all of those expectations and moving at the pace that most business people expect you to move at. So um, I'm not really a security expert per se, Um, we're just a team of developers like any other, we hire consultants when we need them, Uh, we still deliver value on a a scrum schedule Um, but I found that I really enjoyed learning this stuff so that's sort of why I'm doing this now. Um, Also, to be clear, I'm not affiliated with OWASP in any way. They're a separate body of people. I've never volunteered for them or anything like that. Um, They don't pay me any money. Um, I'm just a massive fan of the hard work that they put in to make application security a better space. Uh, So any opinions and suggestions that I share here tonight aren't to be taken as views of the OWASP uh, project. Um, And finally, I'm gonna show a couple of attack techniques, so please don't test things that you don't own. Um, especially without asking. Um, So always gain written permission to perform any security testing for people um, uh, on other people's properties. That's not a good thing to do unless you're a professional. So even I don't do that. I just uh, play around with my own VMs, and at work we uh, regularly go in and try and break our own stuff. So that's about it. Uh, So what is this top 10 uh, of which I speak? Um, A lot of you obviously know what it is, but uh, in case you're new to web development or haven't needed to know, uh, here's my take on it. It's basically a series of uh, handy pieces of advice uh, to get you to the 80% mark of having a secure website. So if you follow the guide, then you're going to get a fairly good result, fairly solid result. Um, It's uh, pretty easy to find online, um, and uh, in a few slides time I'll I'll show you what it looks like. But it's built by the... um, Open Web Application Security Project, and they're a non-profit organization, uh, and they just aim to make knowledge related to secure application development transparent and free from commercial interests, which I quite like. Um, All of their content is free to use uh, and contributed through volunteer work. Um, So that's the power of sort of community right there. And the other thing I like is that they often reject proposals for change that sort of come from commercial interests and things like that. Recently, they went through a change, and that's what I'm showing, is the changes from 2013 to 2017. Um, It sort of appears that they would had a few inputs from some some business interests that looked like it was going to head in one direction, and they kind of rejected those proposals and went with community efforts. So they've got a fair fair degree of integrity. Uh, And for this reason, I, I feel like it makes a very sound basis for looking inwards. So what you're looking at here is uh, a quick graph of some of the data that they have, and they share this data online on GitHub. Where you can just go and download it. I'll, um, I'll put some links in the, in the notes. <coughs> and this is the incident rate per CWE. Uh, CWE means the uh, common uh, Common weakness enumeration. And it's really just a set of architectural patterns that are known to be weak. And what they t- do is they take thousands of individual public submissions on uh, insecure uh, software, breaches that have occurred in cybercrime incidents and things like that. They collated them and they found um, that this was the prevalence rate of all of the different types of weaknesses that you can see. And so they boil all this stuff down and they do uh, risk analyses over it all with a couple of other uh, angles. So they look at it from the angle of business impact, technical impact, Ease of exploitation, like how easy is it to to break in and use that particular weakness and things like that. And so, for instance, you can see the blue line up there is um, SQL injection. Now, those who know of, that's rather the top, but it's not the most prevalent. Um, The reason why it's at the top is that even though it's not the most prevalent, it's the one that has the greatest impact. It's the one that's going to do the most damage. It can end a business overnight, basically. Um, So, yeah, that's the sort of data that that you can expect to find on their GitHub repo. So here they are in no particular order. Um, SQL injection, sensitive data exposure, security misconfigurations, use of vulnerable components, cross-site scripting, and the ones in blue here are the ones that I'll be focusing on tonight (coughs) just to try and keep things succinct. Uh, I've got XML external entities. Has anyone ever seen an XML external entity before. It's uh, some of us. Yeah, you've got to be old enough to remember. I think <laughs> bit like a, something I something I'd uh, when I was uh, one of my first gigs was doing XSLT programming, um, and uh, and that's uh, transforming XML. So uh, a lot of XML external entities relies on some of the features that were created for that that era um, when trusted networks were a thing. And now we don't have trusted networks at all. So, very different world. Uh, Insufficient logging and monitoring is a really big thing for me. Um, I'm a bit of a DevOps guy. I like to deploy things and I like to make sure everything's scripted and automated. And I really hate not knowing what's going on. So, having insufficient logging and monitoring is like chopping your DevOps team's legs off. Um, And it's surprising how many businesses manage to walk around without any kind of logging and monitoring going on so hopefully if I get time I'll show you um, how to really quickly get a docker container with Graylog up and start logging uh, to it with Serilog. Uh, broken authentication, that speaks for itself basically the logic that's um, uh, baked into things that drives whether you're authentic or not. Um, if that's broken then people can just fake your account. Um, Insecure deserialization is a situation where uh, if you're not careful and you accept objects in a serialized form and deserialize them and trust their uh, content, if that content's been tampered with, then uh, an attacker can leverage that. And hopefully I'll, I'll show you how we can do that with cookies tonight. And broken access control is where you have roles and say you have an admin role and if your access control is broken, then someone can overtake that. And often these things fit together, um, and they're mixed, there. so attacks can be mixtures of these conditions. Uh, so the top 10 itself has been around since 2003, and, and this slide is directly from their documentation. Um, and it's a rundown of the most recent evolution of things. So the highlights here are um, injection is still number one, broken authentication still number two. They've uh, simplified the, the naming of A2. Cross-site scripting is no longer at number three. They've bumped up sensitive data exposure. And uh, that's because uh, if you've seen all the breaches in sort of tech news lately, it's almost like a weekly event. S3 buckets getting left open. Um, The government, our own government, leaving like um, filing cabinets at auctions full of secure documents, things like that. That's sensitive data exposure. Um, and they've joined, um, uh, they've uh, joined insecure direct object references and missing function level access control. They've brought that together into broken access control. So those two things go hand in hand. Um, being able to uh, directly, op- so say you've got an account object, being able to in, uh, insecurely reach that is usually a problem. And if you don't have access control to go with it, then you end up with broken access control. So that's why they merge those two things. Security misconfiguration has come down, but sensitive data exposure has gone up. Um, cross-site re- request forgery has been shunted in favor of insecure deserialization, which is a little bit interesting to me. Um, the cross-site request forgery is still a massive issue, um, but if you're using our frameworks like .NET. Uh, after about four version four properly, then you're probably okay. There's still ways you can get it wrong. Um, if you don't use the right attributes here and there, you can still bugger up uh, cross site request forgery protection. Um, using components with known vulnerabilities, that's where it always has been. Uh, and unvalidated redirection forwards has been shunted in favour of uh, insufficient logging and monitoring. And I'm pretty happy about that because. Sure, unvalidated redirects and forwards can end up with a phishing attack or something like that going on, but um, if you don't know what's going on at all in your business then that's an even bigger issue in, in my book, you, you can't detect things and one of the reasons that I say that is that, and it sort of depends on which report you read, but uh, there's several of them out there that have done hard data collection on this. Um, basically advanced persistent threats that get into businesses typically stick around for about 100 days before they're detected. Um, and that's the average. So they range from 300 days to, like, 20 days. Um, so not knowing what's going on is a really bad thing. Um, and I'll put in there as well, in similar reports, uh, ransomware attacks take anywhere between 20 to 30 days to fully recover from in businesses. So um, good backup hygiene is not a bad A11 as well. So some interesting stats that are kicking around and you can get all of that on our website. So um, The other key piece to recognise is that top ten is really just the basics. Um, there's a lot more we can do to protect our customers and uh, the skill is sort of knowing how much of the book we throw at any given scenario, um, but OWASP has a ton of resources for doing risk analyses um, and understanding how your, your business sort of applies to each, and it, each, each of these concerns. So I strongly suggest just spending an afternoon every now and again just to go through it and have a look around. And OWASP isn't the only good resource. I particularly like um, Troy Hunt's courses on Pluralsight. They're really, really good, um, and it's well worth the free trial just to go and watch him for a couple hours on, on his OWASP talks. Um, he'll get you up to speed. And he has a site called Hack Yourself First, which I've partly emulated here. I didn't want to pinch it. Um, But if you go there and have some fun trying to hack his website, it's actually uh, actually, uh, very instructive. So um, I'll get through some of these items now, just quickly. Um, Broken authentication. Systems with broken authentication allow attackers to impersonate users' administrators. Um, So confirmation of a user's identity and authentication and session management are critical, really, and so we need to get these bits right pretty much every time. So when you're in a code review, the sorts of things that you're looking for are um, hints to the uh, attacker that you might be able to brute force uh, or use some kind of credential stuffing attack. Um, dictionary attacks aren't quite as prevalent anymore. What's going on now is people are sharing over pastebin and other places on the net. Um, they're sharing collections of people's credentials, and they're just blind collections of um Key value pairs, basically, email, password, email, password. No validation, no nothing, just get millions of them and shove them into a website and just see if something sticks because what they're they're relying on is most people don't change their passwords from site to site, so they're just assuming that the, the, the password that you used over here is the same one that you used over there. So that's credential stuffing. Exposure of session IDs. So often we use session tokens to identify a session. Um, if they're left in a header or something like that, um, that can be that can be a bit of a, a boon to an attacker because they can just take that session ID and impersonate a session with it. Um, uh, depending on on how weak it is, weak password hashing and clear text storage is a big no no. Um, basically, we have to assume that we're going to get hacked, um, even though we do everything that we can to stop that from happening. Start from a position of understanding that. We're going to get hacked at some point, and we just want to slow people down. to the keys to the kingdom, and the keys to the kingdom are your admin passwords and your users' passwords. So we don't we don't use weak password hashing, and we don't use clear text storage for those things. And I'd go as far as saying any sensitive data should be encrypted in some fashion. And that's emails and uh, and usernames and things like that. Uh, sorry, uh, emails and uh, and addresses and things like that. Uh, if you can. Uh, if you can help it, in cryptos as well, because they get used in uh, identity theft, and we're often in the finance industry at the tail end of it, dealing with fraud scenarios. Um, uh, Troy Hunt's also released a really cool API that uh, helps us uh, detect weak passwords, um, so I suggest you know, heading on to Have I Been Pwned and looking at his passwords API. So that's for JavaScript guys and front-end guys. It's really, really good. You can take a, a, a small hash of a portion of someone's password at the, the beginning and the end, send it over the wire and say, has this been pwned before? And you can get within about 98% accuracy as to whether or not it's been pwned. Uh, so you don't have to give up someone's actual password or their hash. It's just partial hashes get used in a very clever way. And he has got a bunch of blog posts on how that works at a technical level. Um, expiring session IDs, and if you can, uh, multi-factor auth, is a really good thing to give your customers. All right, so I've talked a lot. Um, how about mm-hmm. we go and look at some some vulnerable things? I'll just uh, mirror my display, so you can see what I see now. Thought well, that was the intro to my presentation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure Firebase is extremely secure, Darren. <laughs> 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 yep. Yeah. All right, so. Um, Where am I? <clears throat> so, bear with me, this is the first time I've done this uh, particular demo in front of anyone, so um, this is going to be fun if I, if I stuff this up. Um, so, this uh, theoretical company uh, came up with this brilliant business idea, and they're really keen to get to know <coughs> They went and spent all of their money on website designers uh, and forgot to do penetration testing. So We'll probably do that for free for them. Um, uh, as I said, that it's it's a very uh, good-looking website, um, and they obviously care about security. Um, they've gone to great lengths to kind of say how much of a priority their security is. Uh, so i just make sure that I'm actually loading this, not from cache. So you can see here it's just a, a simple site and their their great big business idea was payday lending. Obviously, no one's ever done that before, so um, uh, having a good way to um, give people money when they run out at the end of the week is yeah, something that they figured would be good. But this time would be different, all right? Because this time uh, you can apply for an Oink coin so it's it's payday with cryptocurrency. So obviously, it's it's better. Um, so they got a bunch of VC and they blew that all on this massive, uh, awesome logo. <laughs> yeah, i wasn't sure i was going to go with this it sort of just evolved um <laughs> maybe next time <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 you could have generated a bit of interest with the crypto title it certainly gets you a lot of bots following you on twitter if you, if you talk about crypto um <laughs> so um so the, yeah so this is piggy bank co basically um here you can see you can just uh, enter a first name and a last name, upload your bank statement, and uh, and they'll tell you whether or not you're eligible for a loan. What could go wrong? <laughs> uh, they picked a, 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 a common XML-based um, uh, bank format as well, and that'll be the basis for the XSE attack. So this is really just really flimsy pretext for me for showing these things. There's a contact page with some uh, open-source intelligence Um for instance, there's a phone number for contacting, uh, contacting somebody and some email addresses that might be interesting. Uh, and there's this login page. So what I'm going to do is show uh, broken authentication, uh, one of the ways into a broken authentication scenario. Um, so a really common mistake. <laughs> and For some of you, you're probably going to look at this and go, oh, I can't believe it. But it does happen, I, I swear. Um, so if I'm... Me and I've signed up, but I've fluffed my password. It comes back and tells me I've got an invalid password, which is very, very helpful. Um, now the mistake is if I do this and I put in junk here, um, and it tells me I've got an invalid username. So already you can tell it's being a little bit too helpful to a would be attacker. Basically, I'm thinking as an attacker, I'm thinking hmm, if I send the right uh, HTTP request to this web server, I should be able to get a full list of usernames um, if I can brute force the username. So the other mistake here is combining this uh, idea of uh, a login with uh, a combination of either using your phone or your username. Now, phones make a really crappy username, to be quite honest. Um, Phone numbers have a limited space, right? So... Um, phone numbers start at 043 and then a bunch of digits at the end, up to 99999 So that's a lot less permutations to run through as an attacker. Um, so what I'm going to do is uh, show you this site through, through the lens of a, a penetration tester. And, oops, not too far. Oops. You won't mean to see that to see here. Alright, so this here is Kali uh, Linux uh, with a very ominous black cat, which happens to be my cat, Audrey. So say hi, Audrey. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, this this tool is a, is a, it's actually a learning tool for penetration testers, but it gets used in actual penetration tests uh, by auditors, and often we get people from KPMG or whatnot coming in with, with this tool. And uh, I'm going to be showing a, a tool called Burp Suite, which comes with it. That's an awful name, and that's because it, it is awful. It's a really awful tool that does awful things. And again, uh, only on your own stuff. So, what Burp Suite is, is kind of like who, who uses Fiddler to do debugging of, yeah, so, th- so this is like Fiddler with some attack um, uh, tools bolted onto it. So, it comes with a proxy. Um, and uh, if I fire up my web page now on my attacker's machine, and head on over to my site. It lets me in, and I can see my history over here. You see that all right? Mm-hmm. Yep. If you need me to zoom in, just say so, all right? I've learned how to do this with a Mac, <laughs> so I'm keen to use it. <laughs> if you say zoom in, I will do that in a heartbeat. <laughs> hey. It is uh, command option 8, yeah. and that toggles it on and off. So, um, command option 8, I thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, I've got that out of my system. Alright, so what I'm going to do now is just uh, pretend to be uh, an evil person, and I've, I've signed up with my evil login, so I'm logged in. I can then go and look at my login um, and see see what's happened in the request and response. So here's my post and I can see that this is how it works. It sends the username and password and some request verification token, which is presumably some anti-forgery type stuff. There's some cookies involved and whatnot. Um, and when it's done, it returns us to Slash with a new cookie. So, for those did quite see it. There's the cookies, and then boom, there's my cookie there. So that's what um, that's what it looks like from a from a normal point of view. Uh, if I log out and try and log in with some fake stuff. then you'll see here it's, uh, it's showing me what the query string looks like. and It sort of looks like it's setting invalid user equals true so that it can uh, post back and do a really old school way of uh, showing stuff. So I, uh, I didn't have much time. I didn't want to go through the pain of uh, uh, getting Webpack to work. So I just did this in the ASP.NET Core with the MVC Razor Pages. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, the theory is the same. So zooming in on that, um, what I can do now is I can send this to this awful thing called intruder has anybody played with burp Suite before? Or am I the only guy on the sweet, cool alright so intruder um, is a way to pick apart a um, uh, a request and substitute things in I've just picked the wrong totally the wrong thing here. I'm going to pick that one sorry Send to intrude it lights up head on over and it's kind of highlighted all of these little positions it calls them and so what all I'm really interested in is uh, looping over looping over the username like this add mouse here we'll use it so once I've set up my positions uh, I can generate a bunch of payloads and what this is going to do is allow me to pick set of numbers uh, that are sequential from one to another uh, and just iterate over them, sending the same payload over and over again. So if you recall on the Contact Us page, they had a a phone number. Pretty fair bet that that whoever's connected to that phone is probably involved in the website, so we might just try that number. Um, I have a bit of an advantage in that I wrote this, so (laughs) I don't know where all the flaws are, but I'm also going to save a little bit of time by doing it this way. Um, so we're going to take a really limited attack. But I hope, hopefully you can see that this would be trivial to do across the whole address space of um, the, every, every phone number on the planet. Um, so we're just going to loop over that. But before we get stuck into the attack, what I'm going to use is some grepping. So I can, I can search through the response object uh, and, and extract uh, interesting things out of it. So I'm interested in that string there. Um, so it's it's going to set up this uh, expression and extract that value uh, any time it sees it in the response. So I start the attack. It tells me that it's a demo version and it's throttled and it'll be really slow and, and, and obnoxious. So um, you can see here it's just running through, and you can see here it's picking out invalid paths, and those are the ones where it's basically our, our users, and I can sort this list. And So you can see here it's picked up a couple of uh, different users. Um, now, to show you what a kind of more real-world speed looks like, because this is throttled, I've gone and done exactly this um, in a Python script. And this is exactly the same thing, uh, just with text instead of a fancy tool. Uh, it's just not throttled, so um, so I'll run that. Oh, and before I do, I'll show you what the... So, that's, that, see the logs there? The awesome logging has not detected our enumeration. So, again, DevOps guys going, why? <laughs> All right, so, oops, I put the extension on, silly. So, this is a Python script that uses a, a, a library called PwnTools. Uh, which is built for capture the flag com- competitions. If you're a lot of fun if you want to get involved in security, uh, PwnTools tools is a really way to get uh, really good way to get started and I've got some videos on YouTube if you want to check them out. Um, uh, but as you can see here, it's looped over a couple of thousand in a few seconds and it's picked out the same same results. so oh sorry about that. I will um... yeah. <laughs> see oh. Still, damn it. (laughs) Almost. There we go. There they are. There's our valid users. Thank you. All right. So, so that's what broken authentication looks like. Uh, So I'll just head back into my slides for a bit and do a little bit more talking. How are I doing for time? Six twenty-five. When do I finish? Seven? All right, cool. Thank you. This is the first time i use Keynote. It's actually really good. Uh, I normally use PowerPoint. Um, so I'm sort of testing myself a bit here. Um, that. Cool, so we're out of demo time. Into XML external entities. So XSE flaws allow attackers to extract data, execute remote HTTP requests from the vulnerable server, and perform denial-of-service attacks. So that sounds pretty bad. <laughs> so these are extremely prevalent in the wild. I, yeah, I'll get into that in a sec. So what to look for? Applications that accept XML upload. Who's written stuff that accepts XML? Only that week Oh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I have. So I'm getting feeling old. <laughs> uh, all right, so document type declarations, as I said earlier, are a way to... Um, uh, check the validity of an XML document. So they're like an XML scheme. Uh, for, for people that are more familiar with JSON, it's like JSON schema for, for XML. It's the sort of the first iteration of it, and it's got some really cool features that happen to be really bad. Um, so you're looking for stuff that relies on DTD validation, uh, particularly stuff that resolves external entities. I'll show you what they are in a sec. Uh, you're also looking for stuff that uses SAML for a federated mm-hmm. identity. Uh, if you've done any IoT stuff or routers and things like that, is very common. Um, Cisco routers and things like that. So uh, and SOAP, uh, less than one point two that uses external entities is also common in POS systems and banks and yeah, so it's um it's pretty pretty solid stuff. Uh, I was gonna hmm. say, Jim, I might be on the wrong page here, but when mm. you say applications and accept XML upload yep. and include. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, if you've got APIs or something that are um, remoting objects around the place. Yeah, absolutely. So the basic idea looks like this. Is that all right? we my big noggin in the way. Um, So, basically, this is the DTD section of an XML file. You might not have seen it before, but effectively, that's valid XML. It's a really cool feature for trusted networks, actually. Basically, what it do is say it says you're going to get an element called foo, and it's got a type of any. And you're going to see this entity called bar. And when you do, I want you to expand it into bar bar black sheet. Right? Uh, so that, that means that the sender of the XML document basically declares the parser what to expect in terms of markup and can ask the server to perform actions like do variable substitution. In fact, it'll Tell it to go out to a website and pull down content from another website. <laughs> so that's what the revolving XML looked like. So yeah, me almost 20 years ago learning how to do that stuff, I was like, yeah, cool, we can do anything in this, let's build a CMS. Um, <laughs> so the bad part of this feature is basically just everything that I said. Um, in the context of a website, the last thing that we want to do is to allow the client to tell the server what to do. Just don't do it. Um, in fairness to DGT XML entities, were devised in a much more trusting time. Yada yada yada. Um, so, what's uh, what's vulnerable from a .NET perspective is is really important. And again, this stuff's pinched from Osp. so You can go there and you can look this stuff up at any time. Is that? You can see that all right. It's it's a little bit hard to read, I suppose. Um, safe by default is linked to XML, X document, XML dictionary readers for, for varying reasons. But in a nutshell, what's unsafe by default is anything before .NET uh, 4.5.2, which isn't that long ago. And that's XML document, XML text reader, XPath navigator, and any library you've ever depended on that needed those things, which is A9 uh, insecure components. Uh, So this is common because in 2014, Facebook paid about 30 grand to a bug bounty guy, a a bug bounty hunter, who found one of these um, uh, vulnerabilities in their web services. and since then, they've gained a heck of a lot of popularity. And I, I did a quick scan of the internet last night looking for new exploits. And I found one for Microsoft. I found one for... It was um, remote access assistance, the, the remote assistance tools. So so that's the new patch that came out not too long ago. Um, Amazon... Uh, not Amazon. Uh, Apache, sorry. Apache Web Server and HP also had product that was vulnerable to this kind of attack. So it's very common. So we need to be looking at our code hard for this one. And uh, even though you might think you're safe if you're using .NET Core today that's not necessarily the case because what I've got here is the .NET Core application has been misconfigured uh, in order to allow it to happen. So um, let's go back to demo time. This is the bit that I'm hoping works. So, cross fingers. All right. So, when we go to apply for a loan as a normal person, we don't need to be logged in for this. It's just give us a bank statement, we'll give you uh, some OinkCoin. Um, and find a suitable, suitable payload. Where am I? Awesome I presentation. Some vulnerable code. Example bank file. <coughs> so I'm going to upload this, but before I do that, I'll, I'll show you what um, I'll show you what that, that guy looks like. Bank file XML, here we go. See that alright? Let's see me. Alright, so this isn't a real bank file. For anyone that's ever seen one, it's like it's not a bank file, um, thankfully. But for the purposes of discussion, this could be any code that we've ever written, basically. Uh, what's going to do is it's going to pluck out this value using XPath, it's going to pluck out this value using XPath. And you can imagine, you know, it might process all of these transactions and, and whatnot to arrive at a loan uh, validation result, basically. So, let's see what happens when we we just upload that guy. He says, "Hey Jim, we would love to do business with you. We'll, we'll loan you five point coins straight away. We're we'll lent. That's that's pretty cool. Um, the one of the main flaws in this." idea is um, and to be honest, there are lenders out there that allow you to upload bank files to do assessments all right so just bear that in mind so I could manipulate this file and change the result right? sorry, but we're not going to do business with you with your bank statement looking like that. You've only got a 1000 bucks in account, Jim's bank account. That's interesting. So it's taking... It's trusting the input, and it's putting it on the screen. So you can imagine the sorts of things that you could do with that. Um, But in reality, these attacks don't even need that. And I'll show you why in a sec. But what we'll do is we'll start using some some payloads now. Um, So... Alright, right, so let's have a look at a HTTP test. So here, it's similar to that uh, example I showed you earlier. It's um, just going to call out to bing.com and get slash robots.txt, and it's going to inject it into the page. That's what it's going to do. So it's it's going to load it into this entity, and it's going to expand it when it reaches that point. And this happens before the XML parser gets involved, so what's happening is a a pre-step. It's only single clicks in Linux. It's a little bit trigger-happy for a Windows guy like me. HTTP test, upload it, and then boom, it's just gone and read bing.com and chucked it in the page. Is it people following me yet? Yeah? Still with I'm me? Afraid. Afraid? <laughs> oh, it gets worse, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, that could be JavaScript. It could be a crypto miner. It could be, yeah. Yeah, so that's one problem. So let's have a look at a. Let's have a look at my web service. I'll show you if you uh, notice that. So this startup was obviously under heaps of time pressure because they couldn't figure out how to get it to uh, deploy into the right environment without running it as root because it needed some file system access, so they just ran it as an administrator, you know, just, to, just to get out the door and you know, start shipping. You know? So this is what I, um, what you could do with that. So, who, who, you, Linux, anyone? Yeah, a little bit? What does Etsy Shadow do? It's your passwords. Yeah, that's all your passwords. So this is going to go and read Etsy Shadow. And put it on the page. <laughs> Blink and you'll miss it, people. <laughs> uh, and believe it or not, this isn't the worst thing. This isn't the worst thing. Right, so there's the root password hash. Right, so on this particular VM, this Kali Linux VM, there's a thing called Hashcat, and Hashcat is built to take a massive bank of GPUs and literally crack hashes. So you don't want this stuff on this VM when it's not yours. Um, There's me, so yeah, there's my password, have fun with that. Um, And that's not the worst thing, so another thing that a penetration tester is going to do is try and fingerprint the server that they're attacking, and one of the simplest ways they can do that is with an old school tool called Telnet. So what we're going to do is just go 172.20.10.4 port 5000. Ah, oh, it's connected. Excellent. Let's send it a get request. Look at that. It's a bad request and it's a Kestrel server. Hmm, Kestrel, Kestrel, Kestrel. That's ASP.NET Core. But most .NET developers would use IIS for this, wouldn't they? Maybe it's running on Linux. Hmm, where do people put Linux binaries when they want to run a web page? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) So let's have a look at a non-root. So this would work even if you weren't necessarily root. You're running as the context of the website. So if the website's running as a non-administrative user, it's still got access to the application settings. So who puts connection strings... In their app settings.json file, right? Do you encrypt them? Do you use certificates? No. Let's see what happens. What? Let's see what Piggy Bank Company did. So again, you got to remember they were they are a lot of pressure. They needed to ship. Oh look at that! They store in the users in JSON. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> Never thought <of> this. Yeah. <laughs> so there we have it, there's our um there's our passwords, right? There's the evil guy and there's his password. There's the admin there's the admin admin password there. So in theory if we log in with that password, we get we get it. Thank you. Um, we can see our profile, and we're definitely the administrator. And we can go to this admin-only page, where presumably we can uh, configure this this website. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming. Uh, <laughs> all right, so that's an external entity attack, and hopefully you can see why we want to make sure that we don't leave ourselves vulnerable to that. Um, very concerning. Um, obviously, we're trying to integrate things at really fast pace. Um, we have just got to step back every now and again and just make sure we're not doing stuff like this. <coughs> so don't be, don't be piggy banko. All right, still got a bit of time up our sleeves. Let's keep going. Right, so I'm gonna break down what's vulnerable about my my code. Actually, let's look at my code rather than looking at a slide. Um, to start with. Alright, so this is master. So again, I hope you realise that this isn't indicative of the code that I will write in production. Um, this is for science. Um, So, I'm probably in the way a little bit here Uh, Let's just collapse that So PiggyBank Co is an Askinet core to um, project It's just a single project, it's nothing fancy Um, It brings in not very much, just the whole of the framework it doesn't really, but that's a cool feature anyway. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just typical stuff. I'm sure Jack might have shown you a little bit of this last last time. Um, you know, they've done the right things in terms of CSRF almost. Um, they haven't done any logging, even though that they've put it in. Um, in fact, they've commented some out. But ultimately what happens with this XSE attack is that um, we end up in an application controller where we take a bank file as a, an form file upload. So this is how a file upload works in .NET Core, which is a lot nicer than uh, Web API 2.2, I must say. Um, and it evaluates a result using this application evaluator. So we'll just hop into our domain and have a look at application evaluator so it returns an evaluation result basically accepted or rejected Uh, does some uh, some some checking for things making sure we're not loading up crap (laughs) Um, and it parses the bank file returning an XML document and if you're used to using JSON path or something like that XPath is the kind of what inspired that so uh, so this is just using XPath and, and you can see what that looks like up here. So it's drilling into bank file account current amount. Um, it plucks those things out of inner text, puts them in these variables, trusts them implicitly, which is the vulnerability. Um, but there's a bit more to it than that. And that's configuration. So remember when I said that stuff after 452 four, is okay? It's only okay if you don't copy code from Stack Overflow. <laughs> All right, so if you do that, you may end up in this situation where you've just blindly pulled in a bunch of reader settings that you don't understand, and before you know it, you've allowed this stuff to, to come on in, right? So what we don't want to do is allow DTD processing.pass. That should be prohibit or ignore, not pass. We shouldn't set an XML URL resolver unless we really, really trust the network that we're on. And the one attack that I didn't show you um, is called a billion laughs attack. And I'm just going to show you what that looks like now. Basically, these two um, settings uh, stop... Well, normally, if you set a max character from entities or in documents, you'll stop what's known as a billion laughs attack. This is what a billion laughs attack looks like. I didn't do it because it crashes my system when I do it. (laughs) Um, You said that all right? Yeah. So lots of lols. So basically we take the first lol and we put it into this entity ten times. And then we take that big long string and then we put it into this entity ten times. And again, and again, and it builds up a billion laughs, literally. Um, and it just tells the server, go and expand all of that, please. And so this is this is what the Microsoft vulnerability last week was susceptible to. Um, you could you could totally take out a machine um, just using this attack. And it's it's sort of the poster child for XX, XE attacks. Um, so yeah, that'll crash Kestrel in about three or four minutes on my on my VM, and yeah, just trash my VM. So I didn't want to do that. Uh, and can my presentation uh, but that's what these guys protect us from so if they're set to zero that's that's bad so have got to tune in on XML reader settings um, and particularly uh, if they're plugged into the create call on XML reader or XML document uh, text reader and, and stuff like that so alright, now I've got that out of my system that's a little less confusing than the slide hopefully but, just to read it, right? Uh, okay, no, what you doing? So, this is what to look for. So, this is in the slide, if you download the deck, and you can take away some of this. But it's also in OWASP, all this stuff's there. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I, I was inspired by stuff that I saw on Stack Overflow for this, literally stuff on Stack Overflow. So. That's most of the bad code that you see here is from there. Um, so you've got to be a bit careful. Uh, fixing this code depends on your scenario, but the simplest thing we can do is just avoid setting the XML result altogether. Um, and after 5.2, that's set to null by default, and that's why it's protected. Uh, there's no change to the underlying code. This is by design. This is a feature of DTDs, It's mm-hmm. not bug. Um, that's why it's so common. Uh, So the prevention uh, elevator pitch is you should just use JSON. Um, Minimize what you serialize. Don't serialize anything if you can. Use XML schema validation. It's then much better. You get better features out of XML schema anyway if you have to do it. Uh, Turn off entity expansion. That's what I said. Use prohibit instead of parse. Um, And just avoid the use of DTDs. Bad. All right. I've got 10 minutes. I'm going to whip through some... Insecure deserialization now. So um, applications that have to deserialize objects from untrusted sources risk being subjected to object tampering and malicious payloads. So what are we looking for? We're looking for system calls that take input from deserialized objects. They're, they're very bad. Um, basically, imagine a cookie; it's got something in there, and then a system call that takes that value and, and executes it. Rare, but it. I've seen it uh, in router code specifically, um, so yeah, stay on the lookout for you know, system calls, um, especially in web servers, uh, applications that change their state based on a serialized object, and that's sort of what I'll show in a minute. Is a poor cookie uh, implementation uh, in ASP.NET Core. So, uh, and we also got to pay attention to remote procedure calls, uh, JSON with no signatures. So, if you use JWTs without the signatures, then you sort of in this, in this world, HTTP cookies and that sort of thing. Uh, how do we address these? Uh, again, just avoid deserialized objects or untrusted sources is the first takeaway. Just If you can not persist that state in the client, then you're in a better place. Uh, figure out how to get it, get at it server side and, and send the actual data across using HMAC or digital signatures, use integrity checks basically. Um, when you're deserializing JSON or, or any other thing, use strict type checking. Uh, don't, try and avoid using dynamic because that leaves a little kind of hole that someone might be able to kind of just bust through. Um, and log. Just log. Any sort of mistakes in deserialization is usually a hint that something bad's happened. Uh, someone's deserializing for three hours straight on the same user account. You can bet your bottom dollar that they're just trying to iterate through something. Alright, so this is where my demo begins and it's starting to get even more fuzzy as I realise how much I've tried to put in one one demo. Um, Hopefully everyone's sticking sticking with me. Right, so I'm gonna hop back into Carly. Into Burp Suite, and we're going to drill into this uh, login a little bit. Where it's actually this login is actually even worse than it looks to begin with. The reason is is there's a poor cookie implementation going on here, Uh, and I'll show another Burp Burp Suite feature. So if we look at our login here. This is our cookie for Piggy Bank Co. Any guesses as to what's different about this cookie compared to this cookie, for instance, or this one? Nothing's sticking out at you? It's like a URL encoding or something going on. He's on the Looks right track. Like day sixty-four to me. Bingo. Right, so there is a really cool thing called Decoder in Burp Suite. So we will send it to Decoder. And what Decoder will do is do a smart decode. So, as a script kitty, you don't even have to really know what it is. You just hit smart decode and it'll be smart for you. Just like Andrew over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well done, George, Andrew. You sort of picked up um, code So, let's just uh, decode that as base64 now. And this is what is inside of our cookie. A username admin oh, thank you. This is what's inside of our cookie. Admin and type 0. That's interesting. So, the insecure deserialization part of what's going on here is that the cookie is setting this type, and when you drill into the code, uh, you see a fairly common. Kind of mistake in uh, in websites per se, but you know, for people that don't know ASP.NET Core very well, ASP.NET Core has some really good constructs for um, using claims auth and, and cookies. Um, so what Piggy Bank Co. Did was kind of not read the memo that, um, and instead they they put this sort of stuff on their view bag and. In their, in their admin controller, instead of using the authorised attribute, we've got this util uh, called isAdmin, and, and they're just sprinkling that around the code base. So if you're an admin, then, you know, uh, return the view, else return not found. So that's their security model, and that's part of the problem. Uh, and what it means is that I can... Uh, Login as another user and manipulate that cookie, set set the user type to something else and uh, and get in. I'll show you what user type kind of represents in this. Uh, let's see, models is our user. And you can see here we've got two different types of user. We've got admin and user, and that's that's how they've gone and done that. Um, So yeah, you do see this from time to time in code on GitHub and places like that where people haven't really understood how the security model in .NET works um, and they just kind of roll their own. Um, And they chuck it in a cookie, they encode it badly, they might use some weak encryption or something like that um, and they get pwned pretty quickly. So what do we do about that? Um, From the attacker's point of view, um, what we can do is log out and if you recall I've got my um, evil account I think I'm just going to set and set on good. So intercepts come along here and uh, I've got this I've got this kind of scenario, I'm just going to, I can basically forward or drop this packet. I'll forward it across. Forward again. Oh, I'm going to restart my. Try that again. There's a bug in my buggy code. Surprise. (laughs) Um. Okay, so I'm I'm logged in now. Here's my non non non-admin cookie, basically. So I'm gonna. Chuck that over into decoder like I did before. And I'm going to smart decode it. Decode base64. And you can see here it's now type 1, right? So that's a non-admin user. So what I can do is just edit that and then re-encode that as base64. And you can see it's ever so slightly different at the tail end here. Can spot the difference, it's just this character. Yeah. Alright, so if I change that X to a W, uh, I turn myself into an admin user, right? It's kind of scary. So this is insecurity serialization. We're trusting the deserialization of this JSON uh, object, we're plugging it into this structure that determines whether you're an admin or not, and then we uh, then we're off. So the way This works is we turn intercept on. We try and browse somewhere. You come over to here and it's intercepted this payload. Um, We can just go here and go change that. So I've just changed that to a W. And then forward that on. You can see here I'm now admin and. A few more requests. On the way. Oops. Almost. Let's try that again, sorry. Can you change it on every request? Yeah, it's thank you. <laughs> let's, let's try that again. This time, for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, nothing up my sleeve. At least it's resetting the cookie and not just replaying the same one back You're giving it to you persistently. So it's that that's actually a a, yeah, <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a feature in um, Fiddler, actually, that lets you um, detect... It. It's actually got a better feature for this kind of thing. It lets you detect the incoming request and then replays it uh, every single time. Uh, auto-responders. Auto-responders. That's the one. Uh, so, I've edited that, I'm going to forward it on, I've got admin only, actually, I'll turn intercept off, I'll go there, and, ah. you get the picture, right, I think the pizza's here or something, is, it, is the pizza here? <laughs> I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> um, I get the hook. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Alright, so you get the picture, you would have seen Rick Astley again, and, um, <coughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm not a very skilled hacker is what it comes down to. So that's uh, insecure deserialization. I'll uh, really quickly just walk through the types of changes that you need to do in order to fix this in .NET Core. This is the price that I'm looking for. Ah, yep, awesome. All right, so this is the right way of doing it. You get rid of all that is user admin and all that sort of stuff, and uh, instead we uh, add an authentication strategy called cookie authentication defaults um, uh, dot authentication scheme, and we add this cookie with some options. We give it a login path and logout path, so it knows where to go to um, if if you decorate a a controller action with uh, an authorised attribute, it'll know if you're not authorised to go here, and then when you want to log out it knows to go there. Um, And then we're using a fairly new feature called um, add authorization, add policy, uh, where we set up a require administrator role and a require authenticated user, uh, sorry, we, we add two policies, one for requiring administrators and one for requiring just a, uh, an authenticated user. And we use this policy.require role, and, and we can uh, use that instead like that. Uh, and our account controller now has this kind of attribute set around the place. Yeah. So it's a really neat way of... Um, making role-based authentication a lot simpler. And you can see here, instead of um, chucking a cookie around with all this stuff, we use claims instead. So so the way that, um, uh, Barry Dorans and the .NET team are trying to steer stuff is towards standards-based um, authentication and security strategies. So this is part of claims-based, or claims-based authentication, and they're trying to set us up for, if we want to go to OIDC, or OpenID Connect, and uh, OAuth uh, providers. Uh, so you can do cookie auth with claims just like this, really simply, and um, you don't need any of that uh, is admin stuff that will leave you vulnerable to the sorts of things that I showed you, especially if you're not encrypting your cookies properly or not putting a HMAC in. Um, so, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Uh, How am I going for time, Dave? Should I wrap up or? Yeah. Yep. I think are uh, on their way. They're on their way? Not yet. Should I go through another item? Everyone's what? might be, yeah? What, what about Greylog? Anyone use a centralised logging system? This is my favourite thing. We no, yeah. Seek. Okay, yep, nice. Splunk? Splunk. This is, okay, um, this is my favourite thing. Cool. This shouldn't take too long. So part of my job is to um, deploy banking backends to things. So I recently wrote a credit card uh, storage system and uh, that was very (laughs) nerve-wracking, I must say. It was a lot of fun, but one of the things that I really wanted was visibility over what was going on in that system at all times. And I wanted to alert if something went wrong. So, uh, what I what, what I chose to do that job, and what we now use as a company company wide for this sort of thing is a tool called Graylog. Graylog is free, and it looks like this. So in an improved cut of this code base, and I'll put this whole code base on GitHub for you guys, so you can download it, you can try and hack this if you want to. Um, It's got the exploits in there, so you can run your own uh, testing. Um, And uh, and it's also got a Docker Compose script to up a whole Graylog environment for you as well. You just go... um, Actually, I'll show you that now, because it's really simple. So to get to a place where um, you aren't like Piggy Bank Co. and you've got great logging is on the logging fixed branch, and the bit that makes it work is about 20 lines of Docker Compose. So if you install, if you've got Windows 10 or a Linux VM, um, install Docker if you haven't already. And grab this thing. Um, you can. You, this is a non-production instance uh, set up because it's got you know some someone's. It's just got the default stuff from the Docker Hub, right? Um, but you can have a play around. You could demo it to people at work um, and show it off and um, and get some gains. But basically, it sets up a Mongo instance, an Elasticsearch in- instance, and a Greylog instance. Uh, sets some environment variables and then these links here sets up all of the uh, networking between them So they're like three VMs all running at once um, And then it exposes these two ports now. This one is for the website front end So once you up this you just go localhost colon 9000 admin admin for the for the password because We're security conscious um, <laughs> and uh, and this port here is a UDP port so that when you hook up Seralog, and I'll show you how to do that in a sec, it'll uh, poke all of the logs over to it. So the end result looks like this. Um, now you can imagine all of your websites that you've got in your business all dumping the logs into this thing and it's really quick to, to search through them all and you can kind of get like a, a view of the last a day's worth of logs, for instance. So you can come in in the morning. This is what I do. I come in in the morning. I get my coffee and I look at my logs. And you know, I go, oh wow, look at all these messages here. What's what's that spike? What's going on there? Um, hmm. Let me see. Here's all my requests. It's a bit noisy, but there's a login attempt. And there's an invalid password attempt. So basically, what I did is I went through the piggy bank code and I, and I fixed all log I put all logging in there. Um and you can see here we get these um action IDs and if you if you're used to using distributed systems one of the things you want to be able to do is 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 key all the different interactions from one person on a GUID. and and graylog and seralog together makes it really simple to do that so that you can um uh, so you can zero in on a particular action ID and then get that stream of logs and see what happened for that little stream there yeah so imagine it being against, you know, the web front end and then another server and another server doing some API work or something like that. You could get all of the logs um, on that action ID like that. So you can see here, here's the arguments. So, you, so with, like, a handful of lines of code in ASP.NET Core and a really simple Docker Compose Upscript, you could be seeing what, what arguments are getting sent, what the request ID was... So that's like a session kind of identifier. It's not the session identifier, but it's sort of like a proxy for it. Um, You can see the full message, executing action. Uh, You can see the model state validation that's going on. So you get all sorts of stuff. Um, And you can see here, login attempt for Jim, invalid password attempt. Yeah. Executing the redirect result to here. So you can very quickly just see what happened in your in your business. And that's why I really like this tool. And the other reason why I like it is it has dashboards. So for instance, we could, again, come in in the morning, and instead of trawling through logs kind of like that, we just go, oh, wow, look at these spikes here over the last 24 hours. Uh, drill in. Drill in. And you see here, here's a is an example of what an enumeration attack looks like on your network. So this is the one we did earlier. Sorry, I may have missed something. Were you right, you logging to Seralog and then like uh like using um, the search capabilities of greylog to surface it In a nice dashboard. And so um, the uh the MongoDB is that's not the Seralog that's what um, using to service it? Correct. Right. So if you can imagine three servers, and a production instance would involve load-balanced mongos and a couple of things. So the MongoDB is the database that Graylog uses for its web page, which web front So all of the system settings and users, it will connect to <coughs> AD, so you can connect in the AD users, and they use Windows auth to log in. Great. Um, so all that stuff gets tucked into Mongo. Uh, You don't pay for Mongo, you don't pay for Greylog unless you want auditing, uh, which we did. Um, So we went and got ourselves an enterprise licence and for about, I think it's about $6,000, you get full auditing of any change to the system and we needed that for PCI compliance because the auditors come along and go, well, how do you know your alerts didn't change? Some guy just came in and, you know, trashed all your alerts. We needed to know that. So we bought... So you can uh, run an Azure container for...
1: So then you, you
0: could point it to where it be your all of your you say running seven different website just somehow yeah, put them all it. in. All yep. them. Where where do you how does it point to where uh, which uh yep. say um Azure yep. Yeah. that you're looking at? So if you're gonna to go to Azure what you'd want to do is probably set up a VPN between your business and, and Azure uh and then make sure you had uh a, a UDP port for twelve two hundred and one open. Yep. Uh and forwarded correctly. So you might need to arrange that with some people. But um, I'll show you the code cause it's really simple. All right. Uh, oops, that one, that one. I don't know if it would work, but you might be able to use the hybrid connection division. Yep. HCA as well. Yep, absolutely. Just the log just hook up as another sink? For, so, like, is the that easy? Okay, cool. It's that easy. It's, it's, it's actually a fairly green project. Uh, it's some guy's first ever NuGet package, but it works brilliantly. Out. Nice. Yeah. Um, 1.0.0. Yeah. <laughs> so the dependency you want to take on is uh, you just basically want to go .NET add package Serilog and Serilog ex- Oops. Serilog extensions logging and Serilog syncs Graylog. Yeah. yeah. So those three guys there, and again, this will all be on GitHub, so you can just you know grab it down. Um so we do that, then we go into you know, yeah so it's different to NLog. I re- we do n log at work, um, but I was really frustrated with the lack of correlated logging out of the box with it. We actually had to roll our own. Um, so I was looking at Sarah to kind of fix that and reduce a whole bunch of code that we had. So um so here's here's the logging stuff. So for those, uh, not quite up to speed with uh, Asknet Core, Startups where all the configuration happens uh, before we start serving requests and the first thing you want to do is set up log.logger there's squigglies because I haven't restored and built, I've just switched branches but, so pay them no heed but um, this new log configuration this is the magic bit that puts all of those correlated IDs in and, and stuff it's actually um, part of the uh, the ASPNET, the serolog.web.aspenet core namespace. Um, and then you hook up your Greylog instance. And this is your the answer to your question um, host or address. You can pluck that out of configuration. Or you could use an XSE attack to get the configuration out. But um, yeah, so <laughs> host name or address comes from here. And a port. That's all you do. Uh, this is what the. Um, I'm called create logger at the end. Uh, and then that plugs into the standard AstNet core abstractions for logging. So, so I literally swapped this out this afternoon before I got here. I was using NetNlog and going, oh, I can't show you correlated logging. Get out, do log instead, and boom, I didn't have to change any of my logging code. It was magic. Really cool. So here's here's what got spit out onto the screen earlier. Um, and that's localhost, so that could be your. uh, as your uh, host as long as you had the requisite networking and I I wouldn't do this in the clear, please don't do that Um, and you set up your port it just assumes that that's a um, a UDP port but you can also set in the sync itself uh, there's another uh, setting here to use TCP so if you really want to make sure that you're getting all of your logs just be prepared for the network here um, because if you log as much stuff as we do, then it'll just crush your network. So we go with UDP and just cop the loss every now and again. So that's that's pretty much uh, it for me. That's that, And that covers you off for the, the last one. So A10, insecure logging and monitoring, Greylog will solve that for you. <coughs> sure, you can use Application Insights if you can afford Azure uh, as well. Uh, that, that's an option. Um, but if you do on-prem stuff like we do a fair bit, then Greylog's are really, really neat Free tool. Um, uh, the architecture it, again, it, the elastic search is what gives you that really fast search. The MongoDB is the um, it's the website front end uh, database, and then the log instance itself is the, the sweet bit at the front end. Um, yeah, it's a nice, uh, easy to use package. So. Uh, yeah. Does it have any main standout features that aren't in application um, It's free. Uh, as, a, as a first one, uh, you, can in, you can run it locally um, as a, as a full, full-blown server. So what we do is we actually deploy uh, test uh, instances of this around the place uh, so that we can test that our logging is really good. Um, uh, in terms of features, I'd say that Application Insights can give you more insights into your data. Um, you can use it to get kind of like marketing-level stuff. But, yeah, Greylog's um, much more geared towards the DevOps type thing. But I I think that because it uses um, Elasticsearch under the hood, uh, there's a fairly well-known community about uh, querying Elasticsearch uh, as well. So that's a really good feature about it. Um, The graphing's uh, fairly pluggable. You can extend it. Um, I can't remember what it's written in, but, yeah, uh, as I said, it's an open-source freeware. Hopefully that answers your question. Any other questions? Yeah, I had one. Sorry. Yep. Asking questions. No, don't be sorry. Oh, sorry, you want food? Sorry, everyone. Um, the first, how did you actually point it to to actually switch it on? I didn't. I missed that part. So sorry. You load up, Sleep. Oh right. Yes. And then yep. you started logging, and doing, setting all that kind of stuff. I missed the very first part. Does it automatically right. just start running? Okay, so there is a little bit of setup there. I, I did. I did smooth over some of that. Oh, that's that's very I very good eyes. Um, but uh, all, all it really is is you go into Burp Suite and you set a target. Because it's a pen testing tool, one of the big things with pen testing is what the scope is. So you want to make sure that you're not, like, pen testing Google. <laughs> uh, so you set the scope up, and then it will only uh, intercept the, the connections for that. And then the proxy tab in, uh, in Burp Suite is where you can um, uh, set intercept to be off. That means it won't block any any requests. Then you go into your browser on your machine and you set the proxy settings for the browser to point to um, to Burp Suite, which is on port 8080, which is basically the same as, uh, say, Fiddler. It's not as nice as Fiddler and it doesn't automate that for you. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I have one question. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Sorry, the serial the correlation ID, the action ID. Yeah. um, how do, you get it? How do you get across the different process space? I'm glad you asked. That is such a good question. So uh, do I have my middleware? I don't. All right, so very quickly, um, what you do is you set up some middleware uh, in the own pipeline, yep. and you use the trace identifier, is what it's called, on HTTP context. So HTTP context in Asmet core has its own correlation ID. What you do is you pop that as a custom header into all of your requests. So if it's not set, you set it with, with something, um, and then you can pass that down the wire as a HTTP header so you can get the connectivity between all the different systems. That's a really good question. All right, I think uh, food's here, so thank you very much, people, for listening to me. <laughs>